You're listening to audio from Cobblestone Community Church in Oxford, Ohio. Our desire is to be taught by the Word and led by the Spirit. In our Converge workshop, we focused on just that, how to hear God and how to speak what He says. In this last session, session three, we talked about some of the pitfalls in hearing God, mistakes that people make, and how we can be people that walk in humility and grace. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so for this next section, we're going to go through chapter 18 of Deuteronomy and chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. Um, there's going to be a, a lot of little content there, so you're going to want to have your finger in those two chapters. And so we're going to deal with that Crider argument. Yeah, I actually don't think I'm a prophet. Um, I really don't. Uh, you know, there's, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says there's a variety of gifts, but one spirit, a variety of ministries, but the same spirit. So the idea there is that um, you may have a gift to do something, whether it be prophecy, but the way you conduct your prophetic ministry may look different than another person who's gifted prophetically. So you've got guys in the Old Testament, right, who, who are prophesying to an entire nation right, the prophet of Israel, um, you know, and, and when a king needed to make a decision, he would go and consult the prophet um, or the seer, you know, Gad was a seer, and that's probably another term similar to prophet, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I prophesy, but I don't really feel like I have that kind of, like, uh, prophet level status, you know, and I, I think there's a, and, and the other thing is I think Prophecy is probably more pervasive in the Christian culture in general. So I don't mind saying I have a gift of prophecy, but I just wouldn't consider myself in a ministry where I'm, uh, you know, prophesying to heads of state or prophesying for direction of church or, or, you know, that kind of thing. I think I just, you know, have individual little ministry. And honestly, largely for me, the way the prophetic ministry works is either when I'm ministering to a single person when they're asking for prayer or uh, when I'm demonstrating it for an audience. Um, but I actually don't even think I'm that prophetic. Um, you know, Sean has known me for years, and he could probably affirm this on some level, not me just being lacking in prophetic gifting, but, but predominantly, you know me, uh, wh- wh- where would you say the areas where I'm most gifted? Yeah, teaching, healing, and words of knowledge. And I would agree with that. Um, so... I teach, and I'll teach on prophecy and hearing God because I'm, I'm commanded to. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to equip the saints in the work of ministry, and this is one of them. So, uh, but that's actually not a primary gift for me. So I would say that uh, I'm real hesitant to call somebody a prophet if I see them moving in, like, pretty spooky. I mean, there, there's, there's guys that'll literally, like, say, hey, your name is this. You came from this town. You've been praying about this, and you've been dealing with this sickness, and the Lord wants to heal that. And here's what he's going to do with your future. Like, that's somebody, and they're accurate. And they're getting all that stuff right. I mean, I'd, I'd probably go. And then they do it to the person right next to him and the person right next to him. I'm like, yeah, that guy's probably a prophet. Um, so the, the, the degree and the power they move in is sort of a determining factor for me. Degree of accuracy and power. Um, I think all of those play a part. Um, and then I've got a friend of ours, Michael Murphy. I mean, he's one of those guys who sees in the spirit. Like, he'll see you know, demons, you'll see angels, uh, and, and then with pretty normal regularity. And I think he's, you know, 
probably one of the more prophetic guys that I know at my church. And so, Sean, you probably agree with that as well, right, about Murphy? Yeah. You know, when I teach on this stuff, there's a propensity for people to think, oh, wow, he's really gifted in prophecy. I'm really not that gifted there. I get words of knowledge on occasion, and, um, and I don't mind teaching on it. Uh, I, I like teaching on healing and deliverance more. Um, probably the thing I get more excited about. And so when it comes to even like, you know, what, how do I know what my gift is? How do I know what gift God has given me? Usually, uh, I would say, what do you want to do? What's the desire in your heart? Some people just burn to share the gospel. Like, they just want to get out there. Sean's this way. Like, he just wants to be on the streets praying for the sick and teaching the gospel to people. Um, I don't get excited about that. I get really excited about teaching the scriptures. Um, that's probably because I have a teaching gift. And so that's one indicator to find out, like, what your gift is. And I would say, listen, if, if you're a believer, um, you've been given the Spirit, right? Uh, I don't think you need to wait for some subsequent experience, encounter with God to suddenly have gifts operative. I think if, you, if you're a believer in Christ, then he's empowered you with gifts of the Spirit. I, do I think you can get gifts later on as well? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, 1 Timothy 4.14, um, t- Paul will tell Timothy, uh, don't neglect the gift of God which was given to you, not when you believed, but when the elders of the church, they laid their hands upon you and they prophesied over you. And then he speaks of another gift in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, Stoke into a great flame the gift of God which was given to you when I laid my hands upon you. So here you have another gift that Timothy was given when Paul the apostle laid hands on him. So different experiences, different gifts that were imparted to Timothy. Um, and, and the reason I say I think you get gifts when you believe is because we're told we're given the Spirit when we believe. Um, uh, you see that in Ephesians. You also see it in, in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, you know, the whole chapter about I don't want you to be unaware about spiritual gifts. He says, to each one of us has been given the Spirit for the common good. This is the Corinthian church. We've all been given the Spirit for the common good. For by one Spirit, you have all been baptized into one body. So when you believed in the Spirit, when you believed in Jesus and you trusted Him for salvation, you were placed into the body of Christ. Well, how were you placed into the body of Christ? Through the Spirit. It was through the Spirit that you've been birthed into the one new man in Christ the Lord. So um, I'm not a second blessing guy. I don't think you need to go tarry in your prayer closet to get the second blessing of the Spirit. Um, I, although I think tarrying in your prayer closet is good. Uh, fasting is good, and the desire for more is good. So I'm giving you a lot of information you're not asking. I'm just kind of trying to lay out some arguments. I think there's a, a problem in the Pentecostal world. Uh, I, don't, I, I think they're brothers and sisters of Christ. I think they're incredibly well-meaning. But when they tell you that the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues... Um, what that does is causes a lot of people to think that they don't have the Spirit because they don't speak in tongues. And I don't believe everybody speaks in tongues. You know, Paul will even ask the question rhetorically, do all speak in tongues? Well, the implied answer is no. Uh, And if you're going to say everybody does, then you have to say yes to all the questions that were just before it. And the questions that were just before it are, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all prophesy? No. So the, the, there's a you know, sort of rhetorical series of questions with the implication being not all have each of these gifts. 
to each one of us is given different gifts. And it's actually sort of the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 12 is, hey, you're given this gift and you're given this gift, but together we make up the body of Christ. You're a hand, you're an eye, but together we have all the gifts operative. Um, it's actually a way that God has made us interdependent upon one another. And so some of the, con- I get frustrated when people talk about um, not having the gifts in their church because of, you know, what it could do. Well, in some way you're telling people that the gift God has given them to encourage the body of Christ and to build up the body of Christ isn't needed. That's a really mean thing to do. Um, and, and it causes people to feel like I have nothing to offer, no value to add. Um, when actually God has given you something to offer and he has given you value to add. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of rambling now, but I have a lot of strong opinions about this stuff. Um, and I just think everybody's got gifts and we actually need each other and it's intentional that, that God gave us the spirit and, and gave us varying gifts so that we would see that need for one another so that we don't allow offense to keep us from receiving one another and what each other have to offer and, and, and go on and on about that. All right, I think we're going to dive into the teaching now. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't teaching you just now. It was just something else. Uh, I was on my soapbox and complaining about some stuff I've seen that's wrong. Um, so I want to answer that first question. Can a prophet get it wrong? Or what do we do if they get it wrong? Are we, just, are we to consider that person a, fa- a false prophet? Well, there are some teachings out there where they'll say, listen, if a prophet gets it wrong, you're supposed to stone that prophet. I mean, you've ever heard that? Oh, come on, I know more people have heard that. Am I the only one? All right. Yeah. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from those two passages in, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter, 50, or chapter 18. We're going to discuss chapter 18 first. Okay, now let me give you some context here. Uh, Moses has just brought the people of, uh, of, uh, of Israel, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And they've been told to go and meet God on that mountain. So they go there. And they're terrified. There's a fire. There's a voice coming from the fire. And they're all thinking, oh, my gosh, we're going to die. Like, there's a, not just fire. There's lightning. There's smoke. I mean, it's, it's a pretty terrifying scene, and which is pretty common. Every time anybody sees the Lord or hears the Lord, you're going to usually find that uh, sense of terror that's there afterwards. You know, Isaiah, woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips. Right? He's seeing the glory of the Lord and recognizing that he has, he's not worthy to be in God's presence. And that's usually the case with all of us. Uh, people who tell me they've seen the Lord or had encounters with God, I'm like, did it result in you being terrified? Because then I'm like, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, people who tell me they've been to heaven and seen the Lord, I'm like, uh, okay, well, let's look for the marks of that in Scripture. You know, did, did these things happen? So anyway, that's what's happening with the Israelites. They've been told to come back and meet with God. They've just been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians, uh, delivered from the Red Sea. Um, and, I mean, God has done a number of things to set them free from slavery. So here they are, and they're meeting with God, and they're saying, eh, I don't want to go back up there. Moses, why don't you go and talk to God, and we'll stay back. It's just like all the churches today. Oh, we'll just let the pastor go hear from God. Uh, we, we don't want the work that's involved in that, and that's kind of scary for me, so I don't want to do that. Um, so Moses goes up, and he meets with God, and sort of this is where the narrative picks up. So he says, the Lord your God 
This is, this is God responding to Moses. So Moses has come up. He's told God, like, hey, here's what's going on. And now Moses is coming back to report to the people what God has said. Say, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Uh, this is verse, sorry, I should have told you, verse 15. Did I say that? Okay. Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet uh, for you like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you have asked the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. You hear the terror and the, the voices of the Israelites. Um, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I shall come, it shall come about that whoever not will, who will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So what's going to be expected of the people of Israel if they don't listen to this prophet? God's going to require something of them. That's not a good thing. That's a sign of judgment. Um, so this kind of prophet is going to say something, and you better listen to what this prophet says. Uh, hold on a second. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Does that sound scary? I'm just curious. If you knew that the penalty was death for prophesying something presumptuously, who would sign up for that job? Anybody? Any takers? Everybody wants to be a prophet, but now, like, oh. Um, it says, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks it in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Well, that sounds scary, doesn't it? it? Sounds like if the prophet gets it wrong, that prophet's going to die. Which again, who would want to sign up for, for prophetic ministry if you knew that that was the consequence? So there's kind of a, uh, something in here we need to, to think about. Um, and the key in this is when he tells them what kind of prophet. Now look back in that passage. When God is telling Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet, what kind of prophet is it? Is it just any prophet, anybody with a prophetic gift? There's a key in the passage. Are you seeing it? It's one little detail you can almost overlook. What is it? Yeah, so God's going to raise up a prophet like me from among your brethren. This is not just any old prophet. You've got to think about it. This is a prophet who was an intermediary between God and man. Someone like Moses. So Moses is actually serving as a type of prophet uh, that's going to later come. So this is a future prediction about someone that God is going to raise up that's going to be like Moses, a covenant-carrying intermediary between God and man. Um, now we see this a couple of times. There's some very unique things about Moses. Uh, check this out. Go to uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 14.
says, Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Now remember, this is Moses. He's just walked into a, a scene where he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And the whole sight is rather perplexing. He's like, maybe I've been wandering in the desert too long, and I'm seeing a mirage. And so he goes to check it out, right? And then he sees the fire, and he sees a man inside the fire, and the man speaks to him. Basically says, hey, I want you to go back to Pharaoh, your brother, you know, the place in Egypt where you had murdered a man, where you're probably going to face condemnation. I want you to go back, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. So Moses is going, you know, God, I think you might have the wrong guy. Uh, I've got an issue with stuttering. I'm not very eloquent. I'm not very articulate. So maybe you should get somebody else for this. And then Moses says, here, the, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he's going to be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, I will be with your mouth and his mouth. I will teach you who, what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. Can you think of any other prophet who had his own little prophets? Is this a normal? Is this a normal prophet where you have people that speak on your behalf? Well, you're as God to that person? Now, obviously, Moses is not God, right? Moses is giving every excuse in the book he can give, and God's saying, don't worry, Moses. Here you go. I, I, I'll make provision here, although he's not very pleased with getting, obviously, very impatient with Moses. But then you, get, you see some more stuff happen. Check this out. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, when you would think that God raising up a prophet like Moses would, would surely be Joshua, right? Isn't Joshua next in the line of prophets? Isn't he the next one to come and lead the people of Israel? Okay, well, let's, let's look about Joshua's prophetic ministry. This is uh, Deuteronomy 34, verses 9 through 10. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is good, right? There's somebody else leading the people of Israel that's like Moses, sort of. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. No prophet like Moses. So in Crider's class, for instance, he'll say, this is the formula for all of the prophets. If they speak a word presumptuously, they're to be killed. God's going to take them out or they're going to be stoned. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying someone like Moses, and Joshua is not like Moses. This is the same book of the Bible that you get Deuteronomy 18 from. So when he's saying like Moses, he's saying, guess what? Joshua is not like Moses. All right, go to Numbers chapter 12. Right, see, again, I've, I've looked at Kreider's PowerPoint presentation, and I know what he's saying. And this is, he, he's taking it completely out of its context because it's a priori, written off the idea that God can't speak outside of the Bible. So chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord, of the, then the Lord came down in, the, in a pillar of a cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. 
He's about to rebuke them. Okay? He says, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, now this means there were other prophets at the time of Moses, right? Moses wasn't the only one prophetically gifted. As a matter of fact, we see Moses lay hands on 70 elders, uh, and they're prophesying. And not only that, there's someone else that's prophesying, and the elders are angry because they're like, hey, they're not one of the 70. And what's Moses' response? I wish you would all prophesy. That's his desire. So, so we got Aaron and Miriam. He says, hear now the words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak with him in a dream. Vision and dream. We've already mentioned those, right? Not so with my servant Moses. Wait, so Moses doesn't get dreams and visions? Why not? Isn't he a prophet? He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings or riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Wait, wait, hold on a second. God speaks with Moses face to face, mouth to mouth, as man speaks to man. Not so with all of the other prophets. How does God speak to other prophets? Dreams, visions, things which require interpretation, dark riddles, things you have to make sense of, right? It's in darkness. means you can't quite see it clearly. It has to sort of be unpacked to be made sense of. And why? Why doesn't he speak to everybody open to, openly as he spoke with Moses? It says right there in the text, Moses is the most faithful in all my household. You actually find another passage of Scripture that will say, Moses is the most humble man in all the earth. You know what I find interesting about that passage? Yeah, he wrote those words. Which sounds kind of arrogant, right? For somebody to say, I'm the most humble man in all the earth. So here's the question. Was he wrong? Or was Moses the most humble man on all the earth? Which also tells us something about humility. Humility is not talk, saying something that's true about yourself, right? It's not prideful to say something true about yourself. We call that pride. Like, oh man, that guy, he thinks he's prophetic. How prideful. Oh, that guy thinks he's got a healing gift. How prideful. No, pride is not saying things that are true about yourself. Pride is thinking that you're better than others because of it. I'm up here, they're down here. This was the problem in the Corinthian church. I speak in tongues. You guys, no, you know. That's pride. Thinking that you've somehow arrived. And you'll see this happen with people who actually are prophetic and they start moving and they get to prophecy. It's real easy to think that you're really something because you have a gift of prophecy. Or you saw somebody healed. Uh, no, it's a gift of God. You did nothing to earn it. It's a gift. Um, but it also tells you that speaking the truth about yourself is true humility. False humility is talking about yourself as though you're less than what you are. I have a problem with this when I hear people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm like, no, you're far more than just a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, you... you we're a sinner, but God also calls you his beloved. He's saved you and made you righteous. So yes, you're a sinner, but you're also a saint. Yes, you're a sinner, but you're also a blood-bought child of God. 
and you shouldn't speak about yourself as though you're anything less than what God would say about you. True humility is rightly acknowledging who you are before God. Okay, all of this is a sort of side lesson, uh, rabbit trail a little bit. Let's get back to the idea of Moses being unique here. Okay, Moses speaks with God face to face, not so with all the other prophets. For them, visions and dreams, dark riddles, things that require interpretation. So does Deuteronomy 18, this idea that if a prophet like me, uh, if they get it wrong, that they're going to die? Is that the way it works out? No. And a matter of fact, I, would, I can give you some examples of this. Um, David, he, he's thinking about he, where he's, he, he's sort of, he's got peace on all borders, and he's dwelling in this mansion. And he's looking over at the ark of God, and he's thinking, I have this massive house, and yet God lives in a tent. I want to build a house for God. So you know what he does? He goes to, to the prophet, I think it was Nathan. He says, I got this idea, Nathan, and I want you to tell me what, if this is okay to do. I live in this house of cedar, but God lives in a tent. I want to build him a house. So you know what Nathan says to him? Go and do all that is in your heart, O king, for the Lord your God is with you. Now, how many of you would agree when you inquire of the prophet to find out if you, what you want to do is, is of God or not, and the prophet says, go and do that, all that's in your heart, for the Lord your God is with you, that's the word of the Lord. Anybody agree with me on this? Is that the word of the Lord, Lord for, for David? Well, here's what happens right afterwards. Nathan leaves. He has a dream. So how did God speak to Nathan? Not like Moses. He has a dream. And in the dream, God says to him, is David the man who should build me a house? Never in all of my time with Israel have I ever asked anybody to build me anything. So is David the guy who's going to do it? No. For David is a man of bloodshed. Now, how is he a man of bloodshed? Well, he killed Uriah. He had him murdered and stole his wife. I cannot let David do this. Instead, I'll allow his son Solomon to do it. So then Nathan has to come back and tell David all of that information. How come David didn't pick up stones right then and there and kill Nathan? Hey, you got the word. You spoke presumptuously. You need to be taken out. You should die for speaking presumptuously. You said, go and do all that is in your heart, O king. The Lord your God is with you. And yet, Nathan leaves and scot-free, right? Nothing happens to Nathan. Well, the, the big key there is, was Nathan counseling rebellion against God? Is, is Nathan like Moses, whom God knew face to face, or did he speak to Nathan in a dream? He's not like Moses in that sense. Um, matter of fact, in the New Testament, we'll see this happen later on where uh, John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and everybody's trying to figure out who John the Baptist is. And so they're asking him a series of questions, like, hey, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. It always reminds me of the Monty Python movie, Life of Brian. How many of you have seen that? Oh, come on now. Live a little, people. This is a funny movie. So the, Brian is a, is a guy who was born in the manger right next to Jesus. So his whole life, everybody's confusing him for the Messiah. And so they're like, He's the Messiah. He's like, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. And they're all like, oh, Luke, he's so humble, he won't even admit he's the Messiah. He's like, fine, I am the Messiah. See, I told you so. So this is kind of the John the Baptist scene, right? They're like, are you the Messiah? He's like, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. Uh, and they say, okay, are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Well, who is the prophet? 
Deuteronomy 18. There was this belief that there was coming a new covenant carrier, right? Jeremiah, he prophesies about a new covenant that's coming for Israel where the law will be written on their hearts and they'll naturally desire the things of God. And he's going to put a spirit on these people. So there's a new covenant carrier coming and uh, they're asking John the Baptist, are you the prophet? He says, no, I'm not the prophet. They go, well, who are you? I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. So then who is the prophet? No longer do I call you slaves. For a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For everything I hear from my father, I make known to you. So who, who was like Moses who had his own little mouthpiece prophets? The Lord. He called together his friends. He gave them authority to cast out demons, to speak on his behalf, proclaim his message. To them, he would give the secrets of the kingdom. He had his own mouthpieces. Um, who brought in a new covenant? Who is a covenant carrier of God? The Lord Jesus. So Deuteronomy 18, again, is this about any old prophet? Or is this about one specific kind of prophet? Moses brought in the law. Jesus brought in grace. So then we've got another passage to deal with. And this is uh, Deuteronomy 13. Go there. And hey, if you've got questions about Deuteronomy 18, anything, if you want to challenge me on it, feel free to. Uh, We'll do some question time at the end. So Deuteronomy 13. Let me see if I can find it. I need to reformat these notes. I'm not, I don't have them anywhere in order. I mostly just have it in my head. Okay, verses 1 through 5. You also find that nowhere in Deuteronomy 18 does it mention stoning. Now, they may be assumed that prophet shall die. They may be assumed because of this passage right here in Deuteronomy 13. But it doesn't necessitate it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign and a wonder. And the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he has spoken to you. And he says, hey, let's go after other gods, gods whom you've not known, and let us worship them and serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, and serve him and cling to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. He redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you in the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So who's the one who gets stoned? Prophets in Colorado? That was over your head, or it just wasn't that funny. I don't know. Uh, who's the person who gets stoned? Is it the one who got it, got it wrong or the one who got it right? Look at the passage again. Is this prophet or dreamer, dreamer of dreams getting the words wrong or right? Hmm. They're actually performing signs and wonders. But in the midst of it, what are they using those signs and wonders to get you to do. 
leads you away from Yahweh, leading you to worship other gods. So this begs the question, what is a false prophet? Is it somebody who gets it right or wrong? Or is it somebody who gets it right but leads you away from worshiping Christ? So this, this goes to the question you were asking me earlier uh, offline. I was saying they're leading you away from God, not to Him. So she was asking me, well, how do you know it's not somebody who's a medium or a spiritist, you know, or somebody who, who consorts with the dead and, you know, offers you, hey, I just spoke with your dead grandmother and she wants you to know this and you find yourself feeling very encouraged by that. Well, are they leading you away from Christ or to Him? Well, in this case, they're leading you away because the Lord has expressly forbidden that in Scripture. Right? We're not to consort with anybody who conjures up the dead. What's weird to me is in Deuteronomy 18, when it mentions all that stuff, like these weird practices, uh, he never says it's fake. You know, don't consort with people who consult with mediums or spiritists. Don't consult with people who make them pass through the fire or consort with the dead. Like He says don't. Don't be around those people. He doesn't say it's fake. As a matter of fact, he says it's real. It's real powerful. But don't have anything to do with it. These are forbidden practices. So, again, the point is the false prophet is not somebody leading you to worship God. The fruit of that prophet is they're leading you away from God. Often they'll lead you into sin. Uh, They'll lead you to worship other gods. Maybe, and, and you don't find this much in our culture, do people say, hey, come worship this God often? No, we don't see that. People who are are performing signs and wonders that I would say are false prophets, at least in our culture, most often are leading you away from God, but here's how they're doing it. They're leading you to worship them. You start to think, if I question what that person just prophesied to me, I'll be disobedient to God. So you see what happened? Is God himself just got replaced with that prophet, and you think to question the prophet means questioning God. Do you see that? They made themselves the mediator between God and man. And I've seen this happen. Uh, And you'll find the the fruit of those ministries is usually some sort of sin, whether it be financial or sexual or a number of other things. There was a guy, I would actually say he was a prophet of God and he became a false prophet. Here's why I think this. Um, He was this, I mean, insanely gifted person. He would go into a room and he would point a person out, tell them their name, their address, uh, the condition, the bodily condition, the, the sickness they had, pray for them, they get healed. And then they'd do the same thing with the next person and the next person and the next person. Um, this person also uh, fell into homosexual sin um, and was an alcoholic and eventually was using his prophetic gift to manipulate others. Um, And you started to feel like if you question that person, it's like questioning God. And so here's the truth. Having a gift doesn't make you godly. Let me say that again. Having a gift doesn't mean that you are a godly person. Having a gift doesn't mean that you have integrity. Doesn't mean that you have character. Gifts are freely given by God as He wills. Character is built through sanctification, through the work of discipleship, through confession of sin. 
Character is built through suffering and trial. That's how character is formed. It's in the furnace of trial. Having a gift does not mean that you have the other. It just simply means you have a gift. That's it. Um, now, how you choose to use that gift is actually entirely up to you. And you can become a force for good or a force for evil. Um, is, is the gift that you're using, it is, is it unto God and, and making him greater like John the Baptist? I must become less, he must become more. Or is it about building up your personal platform? Those are two different things. I know that that's contrary to what we think. We think, oh, well, that person is so gifted, they must be incredibly righteous. Uh, how many of you have been watching the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Uh, some of you. Uh, obviously, I know you, you and I are talking about it. But, um, in this, we hear about uh, uh, Mark Driscoll, famous pastor, uh, phenomenal teaching gift, like just amazing, but also a whole wake of devastation because of his spiritual abuse and his spiritual abusive practices at his church. Just tons of devastation, so many hurt lives. You see, you can have a phenomenal gift of teaching and yet have very poor character. We all kind of know this instinctively when it comes to the gift of teaching. But yet we, we treat that gift as though somehow it's less supernatural than a gift of prophecy or a gift of healing. No, all of them are gifts of the Spirit. They're spiritually empowered by the Spirit of God. But having those gifts doesn't make a person godly. You can do as much damage with the gift of teaching as you can with the gift of prophecy. Matter of fact, there has been tons of damage done with the gift of teaching. Absolutely. Now, a person who's got a gift of teaching and integrity, when they use a gift of teaching in the wrong way and they get confronted, they, they repent. Guys, I taught you something that wasn't true. I'm here to correct that today. Same thing as happens when a person who's prophetically gifted has integrity. Guys, I prophesied something and that actually wasn't right. I need to correct that. And I think the problem we're seeing with prophecy in our culture today is there is no accountability. Um, and I would be very leery of, leery of anybody who comes to you with a prophetic gift but is not submitted to a local church God has not made the prophets of the church the leaders of the church. He has made the elders of the church the leader of the church. A prophet is simply someone with a gift, and their job is to submit their gift of prophecy to the local community. All right? So, and we, we see this in, uh, in 1 Peter. It says, As each one of you has been given a special gift, employ it in service, not lording over, but in service to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you speak, do it as one speaking the very oracles of God. He's talking about somebody who's prophesying. How are they to do it? In service to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So in my church, I don't let anybody who's prophetic, I don't care how prophetic they are. They can be, you know, telling people their names and occupations and seeing them healed and all that kind of stuff. They're not going to tell me how to run the church. If they have a word for me when it comes to the direction of the church or the vision of the church, any of that kind of stuff, they're going, to su they're going to submit it to the elders and let the elders make the decision. And you'll really test a person who, who's prophetic when they give you a prophetic word and you go, hey, listen, we prayed about it. We really don't feel like that's the Lord. And they go, okay, thank you. And they stay in the church. Now, what I see today is people who, who are prophetically gifted get a head on their shoulders and, well, you're not taking the word of the Lord. 
And so I'm moving on. I'm, I'm wiping the dust off my feet. And, and the pastor's going, hey, listen, we, we appreciate that you gave us a word. We don't want you to leave. But we're the elders. We're the ones responsible for, for God, regardless of what you say. The elders of the church run the church. Prophets are meant to submit their gifts to the local community. Uh, all the elders are like, thank you for saying this. Um, it's just simply a gift. Uh, so hopefully I tackled that first question, can a prophet get it wrong? Well, yes, a prophet absolutely can. Um, matter of fact, I, I think there's another question we need to a- answer. I can answer that one pretty quickly. Do you have to know it's God before you speak? Now, some of you, at first, you'd go, oh, of course, you have to know it's God. Like, how, could, how could you say something and say that it's God when you don't actually know it's God? Well, I would submit to you that the vast majority of people that were prophesying, both in the Old and New Testament, didn't always know if it was God. Let me prove it to you. Go to Jeremiah 32. Oh, if you also, just a little, I don't have time to go into it, but if you want to see that Jesus really is the prophet, he's called that in Hebrews. He's actually compared with Moses in Hebrews chapter 3. And, uh, and when, it, when he's compared to Moses, uh, the passage we read in Numbers is actually quoted. Jesus was considered greater than Moses, even though Moses spoke with the Lord face to face. And it's pretty phenomenal. All right, so Deuteronomy 32 Sorry, Jeremiah 32. I'm looking at Deuteronomy. Oh, I'm doing this. Oh, hold on a second. I've got to find this passage. All right, I can't find it. I'm just going to quote it. So in, in Jeremiah 32, uh, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Go and buy this field that's in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to purchase it, and the field is yours. Okay, so word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, tells him to go and buy a field, and he starts making his way over there. And on his way, it says he ran into his uncle's son, which I don't know why he says that. Why not just call him his cousin? Oh, it does? Really? I'm always like, that's just a strange thing. Why do you say uncle's son? None of us talk that way. Uh, but he runs into his cousin, and uh, his, co- his cousin says to him, hey, go and buy this field in Anathoth. You have the right of redemption to purchase it. The land is yours. Verse 7. Sorry. Thank you. Um, So then it says this interesting thing, Jeremiah, then I knew it was the Lord. That's a weird thing to say. Verse 1 in there is like, the word of the Lord came to me saying, but when did Jeremiah know it was the Lord? After he did what the word said. Now, how many of you agree, Jeremiah, prophet, right? Not just any old prophet, he's a major prophet, right? If he didn't know it was God before he acted on what the word of the Lord said, then why should we expect it to be any different for us? Any of you better at hearing God than Jeremiah was? Let me give some other examples. Moses, speaking to the burning bush. 
how do I know these things will come to pass? How do you know, Moses? When you and all of Israel are here on this mountain worshiping me, how do you know that the word of the Lord will come to pass? How do you know for sure that God's going to do what he said he'd do? After he does it, how comforting is that? It's not comforting at all. I, look, it happens again. Check this out. Samuel, we're told of Samuel that none of his words fell to the ground. I remember I was teaching this very same stuff. What, what time is it? I'm like way past time, I think. Okay, we're doing good. Um, Samuel. So I, I was in Ethiopia teaching this same stuff, this idea that prophets didn't always get it right, that, uh, that getting it wrong does not make a person a false prophet. No more than teaching something wrong makes a person a false teacher. Okay? A false teacher is somebody who's teaching heresy, somebody who's literally leading you away from worshiping Jesus. So is a false prophet. There's somebody leading you away from worshiping Jesus. Um, it, it's not about them getting it right or wrong. Now, listen to me. If you're getting it wrong constantly, you probably need to reevaluate how you're prophesying. Like, probably need to have a conversation with somebody who's a little bit more prophetic and, and say, hey, listen, I just noticed I'm getting it wrong all the time. Well, maybe your gift isn't prophecy. Maybe we should see if it's a different gift. I'm not going to call you a false prophet because of it. Now, if you're using a prophetic gift and you're actually accurate and you're manipulating people into uh, uh, indiscretion or into sin, okay, yeah, that's different. That's That's false. Where is that going? Oh, anyway, I'm making the argument, uh, all the same arguments I'm making with you guys, and somebody challenges me. Um, and I'm glad he challenged me. I remember praying beforehand. Now, these guys, they were actually more educated than I was. They, they had higher pedigrees, PhDs, things like that. And I was like, Lord, you're going to have to help me. They're going to probably throw some stuff at me that I've never heard before, and I, I need your help. Like, if, if this really is true, if what I'm arguing is true, give me the answers. Give me the wisdom in that moment. And so one of the guys challenges me. He says, hey, what about Samuel? None of his words fell to the ground. And I thought, like, okay, God, that's one. That got me. Now I'm sitting here making the case that you can get it wrong. And this guy's saying, yeah, but not Samuel. And, and then it was like, so good of the Lord. He goes, yeah, that actually proves my point. Like, oh, it does. Why else would it mention Samuel as being unique in that none of his words fell to the ground unless it's to imply that that's not true with all the other prophets. Why state it? None of Samuel's words fell to the ground, unless it was meant to show you, man, Samuel was something unique. None of his words fell to the ground, unlike the other prophets. Unlike Jeremiah, who prophesied, hey, this king, he's not going to have a successor. He, he's uh, he's going to be left for the birds of the air, and yet we find in the next chapter, his, hey, this king actually has an heir, and the heir is ruling in his place. And then Jeremiah prophesies another time, uh, you know, hey, this, pers this person's going to live a long life, his, his son will succeed him on the throne, and then we find the guy gets killed, his eyes are plucked out by a bird, and he's left on the open air uh, dead to decay. Samuel is the one who none of his words fell to the ground. Um, okay, here's another one, uh, the Samuel, another example of Samuel. So we're told that Samuel was going to be dedicated to the Lord by Hannah, right? Matter of fact, when Hannah uh, gave Samuel over, she, she literally, he was born, she gave him over to Eli to serve in the temple with Eli the prophet. Now at this point, Eli had committed some grievous sin. He failed to discipline his kids, and his kids were misrepresenting God and committing all kinds of atrocity. 
And so the Lord disciplines Eli and hands the prophetic ministry over to the next guy, which is going to be Samuel. But it says at the very beginning, as Samuel is a young boy, it says the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to Samuel, which means Samuel had yet to recognize how God speaks. Um, and then Samuel's uh, middle of the night, he hears his name get called, Samuel. And he walks over to Eli's room and says, hey, I'm here, Eli, you called me. Eli says, I did not call you. Go back to bed. So he's like, oh, that's odd. Goes back to bed. Samuel walks back in Eli's room. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm here. You called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he does it a third time. And here's, here's his name, Samuel. He walks back to Eli. And Eli at this point is like, ah, this is the word of the Lord. Next time you hear your name get called, I want you to say these words. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. Again, he hears his name get called Samuel. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then he begins to hear about his prophetic calling. If Samuel didn't know it was God speaking, what makes us think we're any different? Jesus he prays the words publicly, God, Father, glorify your name. A voice from heaven speaks. This is in John. It says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Cool passage. Do you know what it says right afterwards? Some people said, the voice of an angel has spoken to him. Was it an angel? Some only heard it thunder. Was it thunder? Which means you've got all of these people there listening, and yet they all hear something different. So again, I ask you, if people didn't recognize it was God back then, what, what makes us so certain that we would have to know it's Him before we, when we're actually hearing Him? This is why this whole process of weighing and considering what's said is because of how subject we are to making mistakes. Um, there, there are only a couple of people that spoke with God face to face in the Bible. Moses and Jesus. The rest of us get these flimsy impressions and visions and things that are confusing and not always super clear. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part, we prophesy in part. So we don't always know. Let's see if there's anything else I should mention. Oh, just a little proof that having a prophetic gift doesn't mean you have character. Uh, any of you ever heard of a guy named Jonah? The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them to repent. So you know what this really great prophet does? He goes the opposite direction. Why? Because he doesn't want God to show mercy to the Ninevites. He's bitter and racist and he hates the Ninevites. He wants them to, be, to, to suffer. Look, he's not the only one. You think about what happens when the apostles show up. Now, most of us think character and gifting go together, right? Have the apostles been casting out demons? Have they been prophesying? Have they been healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing the lepers? Yeah, yeah, they've done all these things. And then they come up to Samaria, and you know what James and John, the sons of thunder, say to Jesus? Would you like us to call down fire to consume the Samaritans? And Jesus looks at him and goes, what spirit are you of? The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. These are the, this is Jesus' A-team. 
And they're literally manifesting a spirit of murder and racism and hatred. This just shows us that we're not always, we don't always have God's prioritization on our minds. They never did. Guess what? We never will. Right? There's a, we're still flesh and blood. We still have the flesh that we're wrestling against. And yet God is still willing to use us. That's the crazy part. If you're waiting for perfection for God to use you, then guess what will happen? He'll never use anyone. He doesn't use us because we're sinless, because we're perfect. He uses us because that's all he's got to work with. And so we're going to imperfectly step into all of this. That's just the way it works. So I'm sure there's got to be questions after this one. <laughs> yes. So there's some questions in this. Did Jeremiah miss it when it came to these kings? Well, there's nothing in the passage that implies that they did something different to alter what God had decided, right? So like God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and declare, hey, in this many days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, and then guess what happens to Nineveh? Well, they repent in sackcloth and ashes, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> this is funny. They fast, and not only do they repent, they have their livestock repent. They literally they make the livestock fast. Uh, and so God changes his mind. Maybe that's what happened with Jeremiah. That's, I mean, that could be quite possible. But the text doesn't tell us. It leaves it kind of ambiguous for us. Um, and then there's other examples like, I mean, this one's really weird. Uh, this is going to unsettle some of you. I'm, I'm telling you things I don't have the answers to, so feel free to go do the research and give me the answer. Um, but you see it happen with Elijah. You know, he, he, the Israelites are coming up against the Moabites. You know, the king's nervous because Moab's a big army. And he says, hey, you know, what are we going to do? And Elijah says, don't worry. God has given the Moabites into your hands. Well, then the king of Moab sacrifices his firstborn son to the altar of their gods and said a great wrath came against Israel and they fled. I don't know what to do with that. It was weird. Does that mean I can't trust the Scriptures? No, no. The Scriptures are still authoritative. It just shows us that prophets are not. Like, we, they make mistakes. Now, I'm not saying that they make mistakes in the writing of Scripture. I believe the Bible is absolutely inerrant. But I do think prophetic ministry is not inerrant. I think there's a difference between the authority to write Scripture and the authority to prophesy. Again, which one's higher, Scripture or prophecy? Authoritative inerrant. I do not believe that there are any errors in the scripture and when it comes to testifying of what God says or what he does, right, or, or faithfulness and righteousness and how to come to Christ. I believe they're inerrant. So, good question, clarifying question. I don't know if it was the answer you were hoping for, but yeah. other questions? Uh, let's get the microphone here, Sean. Did that answer your question back there from earlier? It helps? Good. We can talk more. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, don't take my word for it. Go study the scriptures. Be like a Berean. Bereans. No questions, really. There's usually somebody who's just kind of, kind of break the ice there. Go for it. 
So one of the first things that I don't know if I wrote it down or not, but uh, that I remember you saying today, which was so good, was about how like if you want to hear from God, be a friend of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that I I have no doubt about that. That then that that resonates and that seems to be so scriptural. I, I guess kind of also thinking about the fact that there are people who hear God without the friendship of God. In other words, the what we've been talking about that it isn't necessarily character that's needed. Like in even the people in you know, when Jesus says, you know, depart from me, I never knew you, to people who said, Did we not prophesy in your name? So I don't know if I'm opening up a can of worms or but just, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so the kind of like uh, I think you hear my question. I, I Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I so there's a sense in which we we lose the fellowship with God when um, let me rephrase this. You can have a gift and it be absent of the joy of a friendship. Uh, but friendship with God allows the gift to function in a way that's joyful and exciting. Um, I actually, I really do think that you, you lose the joy. When you're, when you're in open, rebellious sin, and yet you're still prophesying, uh, there's a, a, a defilement that comes into the gift. Um, but I do think that, like, that God will reveal stuff. And I mean, this is just, it, it makes natural sense, right? When you spend time with people, you know things about them. And the same thing is true. When you spend time with the Lord, you begin to recognize his voice. You become familiar with it. Uh, like if my wife was to say something and, and she's in a crowd of people and I hear her voice, I'm going to look in that crowd. I'm going to know that I just heard my wife's voice despite all the other voices that are out there. Um, and it's spending time with the Lord that allows us to become familiar with his voice. And once we're familiar with his voice, there's no guarantee that we're going to maintain that friendship. Um, so again, having a gift doesn't guarantee that the friendship is there. Again, I, I would reserve false prophecy for those who are leading you away from God. So we see this, well, in, in the Didache, there's, there's some other information there about prophets who are prophesying for monetary gain. They're to be considered false as well. Um, and then and you do see this happen with, what was his name, Hezekiah. Jeremiah rebukes him. He says, hey, Hezekiah, the Lord has not sent you. You've counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. Well, what was, it, what was Hezekiah doing? Well, the king uh, was bringing Hezekiah around and saying, hey, I want you to prophesy victory for the Israelites and prosperity and all that. And Hezekiah kept saying, well, here's what the Lord says. Here's what the Lord says. It's never what the king wants. And finally, the king gives him, you know, convinces him you know, through a bunch of means, and he then gives a word that the Lord, uh, that the king wants. And that's when Jeremiah confronts, the king, uh, co- confronts Hezekiah and he says, because you've counseled rebellion against the, God, against the Lord, uh, the Lord is going to take your life. And it says that, that Hezekiah died that year. So you've got to think of it this way. When you're a prophet of a nation and you're saying things for monetary gain and you're leading a whole nation into rebellion... Uh, that has severe consequences. Here's the crazy part. Hezekiah was a prophet of the Lord. He became false when he counseled rebellion. Yeah, there's a lot more to that one that I don't understand, actually. Yeah. 
So two passages, uh, Michael Jordan touched on one of them, but um, first off, the gifts and the calling being without repentance would be a really good one to kind of tie into this. But sure. I would really, on a deeper level, in Matthew seven twenty to 22, where it talks about, we did all these things in your name, and he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Would you unpack your thoughts on that term iniquity and, and what qualify or how that would sort of qualify from your perspective? Yeah, I don't necessarily have a full answer on that. Um, but let me, let me touch on the first one. In Romans, it says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Is he talking about an individual there? He's actually talking about a group of people. He's talking about a nation. And so God was still going to fulfill his promise to Israel despite their own rebellion to, to give the Messiah. So the gift of Israel was the Messiah. Their calling was to be a light for the nations. So they still became a light for the nations, right? Because in John says the light, uh, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Um, light shined forth in the darkness. And this was through the Messiah. So they eventually became a light to the nations, but it's not the light the way God wanted it to be. You know, God wanted the nation itself to be a light, and instead he used one person from that nation to be the light. Um, you know, and you see this in Matthew 5, right? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That was the original intent of God for the people of Israel. And yet God still fulfilled his purpose, his calling for Israel uh, and his gifts. Now, could that be applied to a person individually? Maybe. But I don't think you can guarantee that from that passage. Um, but it, it's quite possible that God doesn't take away his gifts from somebody just because they go wayward. He may let his gift stay with them, but they'll also still uh, face the judgment for misusing that gift. And then um, regarding the passage, uh, workers of iniquity, it does seem like workers of iniquity, these are people that are using gifts to lead people into sin. Uh, iniquity implies a waywardness. Uh, it's a new lifestyle of sin, um, a bent uh, nature. And so there's a sense in which they're using all of these gifts, but he also says, depart from me, I never knew you, right? So there's this, they're actually doing and operating in these gifts, but they're doing it in such a way to lead people astray. These are probably false uh, prophets. And the whole question of whether or not the gift is still of God or the gift is demonically inspired, like the woman who had a spirit of divination, it's actually not very clear in Scripture. Um, I'm not saying that, that our theories aren't right about it. I just don't really know. Like, scripturally, I can't really tell you definitively. Yeah, Sam? So, talking about um, prophecy being, thus saith the Lord, or, you know, words never fell to the, fall to the ground. I've heard um, my cessationist friends talk about uh, Balaam, and, you know, hey, I can't say anything but what the Lord puts in my mouth. Therefore, it's compulsory. You have to say what this is, and it gets it right. Is that a familiar thing you've heard, or what would you say about that? That was Numbers 23, 24 passage. Yeah, I'm not sure what to think about that. Um, I mean, I would say the same thing is true for us. We shouldn't say things that the Lord isn't giving us. But our ability to recognize what the Lord is and isn't giving us is also fallible. And so... Uh, there's a sense in which we can get it wrong. But the big question is, so the same thing is true when we're teaching, right? Are we supposed to teach things that are not true? No, but there's times when we, we misinterpret a passage. And so the, the question is, are you leading people into rebellion and into heresy? 
Well, and here's the thing. You may teach heresy and get corrected and go, oh, man, that was heretical. God, forgive me and repent immediately and then clean up your mess. Is God going to take you out? Same thing is true with prophecy. You're not intentionally leading people into rebellion. You may actually think you're doing the right thing, and when God confronts you about it, your repentance is still the same. So, um, yeah, I mentioned this. I mean, today I think heresy is pretty rampant. You know, I think they're specifically the progressive agenda, you know, and, and people who are teaching that God is not punitive and doesn't judge and they say that he doesn't have wrath. Like, that's heretical. I mean, it literally goes against the creeds. You know, when it comes about Jesus coming back to judge the, the wicked and the righteous, you're actually changing the definition of God judging the wicked. Um, I think some of these people are doing it unknowingly, and I think if they're confronted, they may repent. Some may not repent. And at that point, I would have to consider them false teachers. Um, but that's a big component there. Are they willing to repent for what is false or not? Um, that's not exactly the answer to your question, but it's still good information. <laughs> Other questions? Okay, just holler. Yeah, well, that's a good thing that Jesus is our Savior. Um, well, first off, I would never give that person who's just learning a public platform on a Sunday morning. The one's getting led astray. Yeah, again, I would never give a person who's got a prophetic gift that's just learning a public platform to where they could ever make that kind of mess to begin with. Uh, now, in a group setting like this where I can correct it right then and there, no problem. Um, but then, I mean, what you're asking, this happens all the time. You know, you've got pastors and pulpits who teach all kinds of things that are wrong. They're not intentionally doing what they're doing. But then there's a mess and collateral damage. Well, they're responsible to clean that up. And so we hold those leaders accountable. The elders of the church are supposed to hold that leader accountable. Same thing is true with all the other gifts. And so I think that the thing is, we have this tendency, because we're so unfamiliar with prophecy, to treat it differently than we would other gifts of the Spirit. And I'm saying the same solution that's true for teachers that are teaching things that are wrong are also true for prophets who are prophesying things that are wrong. Um, the mess has to be cleaned up. They have to take responsibility for the collateral damage. And so much as they can, uh, clean it up. But the truth is, all of us make mistakes that we're actually not capable of cleaning up. And thankfully, the Lord is really good at that. Uh, and He can clean things up. And, and that's happened with me. I mean, you man, without getting too personal, there are all kinds of things I've done that were wrong in my marriage that I just couldn't clean up. Like, I, I, you know, I spoke to my wife in a way that was actually discouraging her and caused her a great wound. And the truth was, I couldn't even heal the wound I created. And so I'm just like, I'm so sorry, babe. Please tell me what I need to do to make this right. And then I have to leave it in the Lord's hands to, to, to make up in the area that I'm lacking. But that's always true, right? Um, the fact is, it's not just prophets who create collateral damage. It's all of us. So hopefully that helps. Uh, Michael, question here. You were talking about <clears throat> how we have a new mentality in Christ. And we're no longer defined as sinners once we're in Christ. How would you... Well, let me rephrase that. 
we're no longer primarily defined as sinners. Gotcha. We are still sinners, but mm-hmm. we're primarily seen as God's beloved. I just want to clarify that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I feel like that's a purview that, or, you know, a perspective that if we learn to live out of, will change a lot of, like, how we do our day-to-day life, right? Yeah, yeah. And even move in the gifts and stuff like that. What are the roadblocks that you've seen that have caused people to prevent them from thinking that way? Is it like a mix of legalism? Like, is it well, just... there's all number of things, you know? I mean, if, if you come from a background where you've abused women and abused drugs and then you come to Christ, there's probably a lot of shame that you're carrying into your life, and shame will always hinder you. Well, God's not going to use me. I'm just a real piece of this, you know? Uh, I'm just a worm, right? And you see this not just with uh, a past of sin, that, that the enemy is using to continually condemn you. Um, you see it with certain doctrines. I think um, hyper-Calvinism, not Calvinism, but hyper-Calvinism, I think can have that impact. You know, when people just say, oh, you're just this worm of a thing, and, and God will never, you know, you'll never be anything that God would actually like. Um, and that's a big problem in the church today. Is many of us, we know God loves us because he gave, gave his son for us, but we don't always think he likes us. And that's a hard one to get past. But the truth of Scripture is Jesus called together those whom he wanted that he might be with them. Believe it or not, Jesus actually enjoys you. He actually wants to be with you. But that's sometimes a fact we have lodged in our head. Until it gets to our heart, it's always going to hinder us. Same thing with that I'm just a worm theology. Um, So there's a number of things that impede us. Like again, any area of insecurity, like I mentioned earlier, any area of bad theology, like I mentioned earlier, all of those things are going to hinder us from the kind of ministry that God would have for us. Truth is, with all of you, God has more works for you to fulfill than you ever will. That's the truth. Um, But our own things limit us in so many ways. Mindsets, we call them strongholds of the mind, right? Knowledge that's raised up against the knowledge of God. You know, I mentioned the whole overcomers thing. The reason this was so pivotal for me was because I didn't think I was worth knowing and loving. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, I am absolutely worth knowing and loving because Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. But yet, I have this belief, this stronghold of the mind that feels true. And yet it's knowledge that's, even though it feels true, it's raised up against the knowledge of God. And I have to tear that thing down, taking every thought captive and replace it with and again, all of these things affect our ministry. Not just the gift of, of uh, uh, prophecy, it affects the gift of teaching. Uh, it affects how we pray for the sick. So there's just a number of things. Um, it's hard to answer that question and go, here's what it is. Well, there's so many things that affect that. So. It's your last chance to ask questions, so here you go. Any other ones? We're going a little bit late, I think. Is that okay, Andrew, if we go a little late? All right. And I'll be around afterwards. You got one more question? Yeah, I mean, he is our safety net, right? Because even when we sin, his blood was still enough. Right? We're, we're supposed to confess our sins with one another. Uh, we're supposed to walk in the light as he in the, is in the light. Um, 
but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're not going to sin in the future. And, and thank God there is provision made for us even if we sin. Not guaranteeing that you will, but even if you do, um, there's provision. So, uh, there's something I needed to address there. Oh, uh, I want to say something else. This is unrelated, and, and at some point I'll probably teach on healing and things like that in the future. But uh, something I want to deal with is this idea of faith. Because um, I think there's a lot of major, majorly bad and destructive and harmful teaching out there. Uh, other people have made this mess, but I'm going to try to best I can to be used to the Lord to clean it up. Um, telling somebody, if, if, when someone doesn't get healed, how many of you already feel like you've got a lack of faith and that's why they're not healed? I mean, the enemy comes in with that accusation all the time, and some preachers haven't helped and told you you have lacked faith. Uh, listen, enough faith is a mustard seed. Enough faith is enough to ask. That's it. Okay? I think telling people they don't have enough faith to be healed is cruel. Listen to me on this. Enough is just enough to ask. Now, I cannot tell you why some are healed and some are not, but I can guarantee you this. If you ask the Lord, you had enough faith. So let's just stop there with that whole thing, okay? As if you can conjure up psychological certainty anyways. Faith is not psychological certainty. Faith is trust in a person named Jesus, that he is good, that he cares about us, and all we have to do to have enough faith is go to him and ask. But the guaranteed outcome, look, my default answer for my kids is always yes, unless it would hurt them. And sometimes we don't know what's best for us. And that's it. And we have to trust our lives in the sovereign, hand, sovereign hands of God. Sorry, I know that has nothing to do with prophecy and stuff, but I just, I have to address that because that is so common. And it's one of the biggest hang-ups when people start embracing the gifts in a general sense. Um, I, I just find that whole thing so destructive and wrong. So, yeah, I know you got a question, but I want to move to the next thing, so I'm happy to talk to you afterwards about it. Is that okay? Yeah, good. Mm. Okay. Uh, let me get my guys up here. I want you guys to see what we get real quick, and then I'm going to give them an opportunity to practice. So we're going to go a little bit late. I don't know why I keep looking at my watch. It's dead. It's like so natural. What time is it? There's no thing back there. So. All right, we got a little bit of time left. Good. Sorry, that whole faith thing just it bothers me. I'll get on a high horse about it. Okay, who wants to go first? Uh, I guess I will. There All you right. go. Um, so this, this is a shot in the dark right behind uh, in the green. What was your name? Yeah. Chad? Um, are you a high school Just give the words. Coach? Don't I've, ask questions. Yeah. Okay. Just give the word. I felt like you're a high school wrestling coach, um, and felt like the Lord just highlighted that, and there was some struggle there or some questioning, but wanted to highlight that. Is that true? Is that not okay. at all? All right. Has that damaged your faith? Do we need, is there a mess we need to clean up with that one? Okay, just checking, just checking. Everybody's picking up their Bible to throw it at you. Um, and uh, next to Stacy, what's your name in the? 
Yeah, Kristen. Okay, um, Kristen, I had a sense that you are kind of the hub spot. I feel like I feel like your social glue. Like that that when people want to know what's going on in town, uh, what, what what's going on in town, and and like you're the one that would know. Um, I feel like it's like a joyful administration almost. Like you can see how all the social pieces fit together. And it's like the Lord, it's how he brings people together. And you can just kind of, you just do it naturally. It's not like hard for you. Is, is that true or relevant? Okay, well, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a type of administrative gift, but it's not what you're thinking, like the details and the secretary and the boring thing, that's, that's not it. It's like everybody. Hey, for administrative people, that's not boring at all, Sean. I know. Well, it's boring for me. Yeah. But it would kill me. But um, it doesn't even have to be detail oriented. It's just you're the middle where everybody calls into the office. That's just where they, they get to know how to get to know each other. Does that make sense to you? Is that encouraging? And just weigh it. If it's not relevant, just throw it out. But yeah, it's just that's the impression I got of it over you. Um, can I keep going? Yeah. Okay. And Bex. Uh, um, in the white hoodie. What's your name? <coughs> Devon. I'm Sean. Um, I've, I've, I heard uh, you're between. It's like you're between two cultures, but the culture you make is is the culture. Um, it's almost like you can go gravitate between cultures and it's just easy for you. Um, and I, I wasn't sure if there was a question in your mind of, do I fit here? Do I fit there? Where do I go? But, but what you are is the culture. It's the culture you made in between. Um, I heard artisan, lyricist, and software. Do you know what those word, words mean? Does that mean? Really? Okay. Um, you're just cross-cultural, you're like a hybrid. But you're an awesome hybrid. It's like a creative hybrid. Does that make sense? Is that helpful, encouraging? Okay, all right, cool. Is um, that true, guys? Is that of him? Wow, okay. Really? So he makes music, he's an artist. Cool. Well, he, he made you that way. It's beautiful. Sean, you got to speak up right into that yeah, mic. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm whispering because I'm trying to yeah, I know, get excited. I know, I know. I'm trying to slow down here. You know me, bro. <laughs> um, and, and the baby blue shirt uh, next to the guy in the red shirt. Yes, ma'am. Is that baby blue? Oh, okay. <laughs> How dare you? You're unregistered. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Man, you're expensive, bro. Burner! Bring it on. What's your name? Gretchen. Okay, okay. Um, I, I, I had a quick picture of you. It was like you were doing security dog training, and it was like a business. And it was just a visual, not that that's literal, but, but I felt like you're a guardian of doctrine and that you're a guardian of truth and that you can raise up other, other people and teach them the doctrines of the faith. And it's like, it protects the church. There was like a real protective instinct I saw over you to protect truth and to 
like guard the church from false doctrine, if that makes sense. I think that also applies in other areas, not just doc- protecting do- doctrine, but abusive practices and, and making sure that you're the, the one who kind of just tells things what they really are. Like, hey, that's called abuse. Uh, that's called gaslighting. That's, you know, those kind of things where you, you just don't mince words. Is that true? Okay. Is this true? Oh, you did? It's crazy. I'm sorry. Yeah, what the heck? Okay. Gosh, that, sound, that sounds literal. That's wild. I don't know what that means. Um, okay, and then, um, what's your name? Joseph. Uh, I saw you, uh, if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, I, I just saw you as Eric Liddell, and I just saw you running. You have to explain all that. You may not have seen that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, okay. It's a movie about a guy uh, from Scotland, and he's an Olympic runner, and he can just run. And it's unorthodox the way he runs, but the way he runs is he feels the presence of God when he runs in the movie. And he's, like, called to missions, but he's like, yeah, I need missions, but I'm called to missions, but I feel the pleasure of God when I run also. And so I just saw you just long distance running, like you're built to run. There's like a running component to you that's the way the Lord built you, but you can do both and still please God and enjoy God, if that makes sense. Does does that make any sense to you at all? Okay. And just shelf it if it's, you know, maybe it's for later, but maybe it's wrong, which is fine. Um, Let's see. You got more? Yeah, I just... All day... I messed up dog training over here, so um, Gretchen. Uh, and then what's your name? Okay, I feel like you can hear really well. I just saw music and like sound engineer over you and like the ability to, when you're in the room, you know different notes and musical excellence. There's just something about you that was like, you know how to set, how the atmosphere of the room should be for the Lord. Um, and it was mu- it may not be music specifically, but that's the picture that I had. So is that relevant at all? Oh wow. He plays piano by ear. Wow. Yeah, I just heard sound engineer. Oh wow. So he also does audio video stuff. Did y'all catch that? Wow. He built you that way. It's amazing, man. (laughs) I I don't know. I can't hear that well. So it's incredible. Um, Let's get one of these other guys a shot here. You got anything? Okay. You got nothing? How dare you? (laughs) Bring you all the way from Denver and no. no. (laughs) Whatever. Stop. I'm just messing with him. I don't mean it seriously. I have a gift of sarcasm. Next to you in, in the brown shirt or gray. I can't see. Yes, ma'am. Yes. What's your name? Justine. Um, weird picture. I don't understand it. But I saw you sitting with a little raggedy Ann doll, and you were twisting the ponytail and just playing with it. And I felt like the Lord was saying, I don't know if you've ever played with dolls, if that was something as a child that you enjoyed. But I saw you just like in this playful childhood state, like just enjoying God. And there was like a playfulness that he was going to kind of mentor you in, if that makes sense. Um, is that relevant at all, or is that? 
Okay. Well, did you ever see the Lily Tomlin sketches where she sat, she sat in the giant, giant rocking chair and she just talked like a little kid and she had her little dolls and she just, she was just being a child. And I just saw you sitting in a rocking chair, twisting the Raggedy Ann doll, playing with Oh, is that what Lord. you saw was the Lily Tomlin thing from yeah. SCTV? Yeah. I would have shared that part of it, too. That sounds like... Yeah. Oh, Gilda Radner. Yeah, I know about her, too. But um, just a playfulness in a childhood he's restoring is what it sounds like. So is that, is that relevant? Okay. Um, and then the last one. Oh, um, uh, blonde hair, black sweater. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Ginger. Ginger. Um, are you praying for somebody with chronic fatigue or with migraines or autoimmune disease specifically? Okay. Um, we would love to pray with you after for that person. Um, if or maybe even get them on the phone and we can pray for them. Yeah, I was, I was picturing the phone, like calling them and praying for them. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah, great. Yeah, so that's specific. He, he, I don't know why I heard that, but it was specific that you that was on your heart to ask for that. So, uh, what's your name in the blue shirt? Yeah, you don't have to look back. Is it black or blue? No, it's black. Okay. <laughs> Green, whatever. <laughs> Is that a prophetic? Not. <laughs> I'm also colorblind, apparently. Uh, uh, is your? Did you used to play baseball? And did you throw your back out throwing? ball? Good. Praise God for that. So glad. Well, that was it. Uh, strike out on that one. Pun intended. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to have you guys practice here. Um, time we got. Okay. We're going to go 15, 20 minutes late. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, it's one thing for me to talk about this and for us to demonstrate, but the goal is to equip and empower you. That really is the goal. God is raising up the church and the gifts again. Uh, it, is, it is his expectation and his great desire, much like Moses, that we would all be prophetic people, that we would be the people that would have a friendship with him and be able to speak to others on his behalf so that the church can be built up in faith, encouraged, and uh, comforted. So that said... What we're going to do is we're going to find somebody in the room that either we don't know at all or that we don't know very well, and we're going to sit down with them to partner up. Sound good? All right, I'm going to, you know, you're like, you're like, all right, let me, let me rephrase this. You don't have to, but if you are willing, I hope that you would, because I think it will grow you a great deal, and I think we'll actually see God do something kind of amazing in this. Um, some of the most powerful prophetic ministry that I've seen is when we do stuff like this, where I give the body themselves an opportunity to practice with one another. You'd be surprised at what God is willing to do at times like this when we're just willing to, to step out and try, just see what happens. So, and here's the beautiful part. I've already given you the guidelines. Anything you hear from another person, if it doesn't sound right, weigh what is said. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from what is evil. So that said, uh, I'll give you more instructions, but first I want you to find somebody in the room you don't know, and then when you find somebody in the room you don't know, sit down with them and be quiet, okay? Because if we keep talking, it's gonna be hard for me to give you further instructions. All right, go ahead. Mm -hmm. 